Well, you may have heard this story in the news uh, a few days ago, but British Columbians now who do not identify as male or female can choose to display an X in the gender field of their BC-issued identification. And we're talking about things such as a driver's license, an identity card, a birth certificate, and a BC services card. So joining us to talk a little bit more about this and uh, to talk about how significant this move is, is Kristen Malloy, Malloy, sorry, a, a spokesperson with the Gender Free ID Coalition. Kristen, great to have you back on the show. Great to talk to you. Uh, How significant is this that BC has made this change? Well, it's nice to see yet another government in Canada recognizing that gender can't be isolated down to just uh, two binary options. But we've been working for many years to see gender totally eliminated from government documents. So this step by BC's government, uh, we don't actually consider it to be a step in the right direction. In fact, it's more of a sidestep. So you would prefer then no no gender box or nothing that you wouldn't have to tick anything in for getting identification? Yeah, certainly. So the, what they've done is they've uh, they've made it optional to request to make a special request to get an X designation. You know, if you feel that M or F don't apply to you, or if you'd like to raise your baby with more options, you can apply to get the the X. But it's still extra hoops to jump through. Um, by adding this uh, option, um, they they've effectively sidestepped or avoided uh, certain human rights complaints from certain types of complainants uh, because now uh, a non-binary person uh, can't say that they uh, don't have the option because the government has given it to them. But um, our position is that coercive gendering of any person at any time is a human rights violation. And in fact, it's still being done in BC and across the country um, and the world uh, with birth certificates everywhere. And and for if someone's not familiar with that phrase, what how would you define coercive gendering? Um, so at the time that you're born, uh, the government requires that a gender be designated for you. Now that's going to go by default as either M or F based on how your body is shaped. Um, and then in certain cases, in certain places, uh, parents can uh, can sidestep can avoid that by by requesting that it be designated X, which actually means unspecified. It's important that we understand the X doesn't um, automatically determine or indicate that you're non-binary or that you're gender fluid or that you're um, any any non-binary gender identity. It simply indicates the information is not specified. Um, so our position is that rather than forcing people who don't fit into M or F uh, to make a special request for this X designation. If the government really wants to solve the problem of achieving safety in all situations for all people when using government ID, um, they should go ahead and just make everyone unspecified. Take uh, take the gender marker off entirely. Or would it be better then if you didn't have to apply for the X, that the X was something that you chose just like the M or the F? Uh, that would work, but the problem there is that they're still going to want to assign a, a designation on a birth certificate for children. Um, if if they were to uh, place the X automatically uh, or remove gender from birth certificate, are you suggesting that we might still have a gender field on uh, grown-up ID and that you would have to specifically apply to have any of the three options assigned? Not that you would apply, but just to, like anybody who, if you're if you're checking one of the boxes, because I, that was one of the criticisms I'd heard of this, and I think that you're making too, is that you still have to apply for the X, whereas you would never have to apply for an M or an F, that it should be as easy as just checking M or F. Yeah, so that's the way in which this 
uh, current system would continue to discriminate uh, even against the non-binary people that it's designed to help. Um, I would I would expect that if you do have three options, you'll have a selection of three options. But the problem in our mind is the selection itself and uh, even the presence of the marker in general. Uh, so is it not, though? I mean, if, if when, when somebody is, is designated a baby, somebody has a baby and you, you apply, you get a birth certificate, you register uh, with vital statistics, does it not simply mean that this person, this human, was born with male uh, sex organs or female sex organs? Well, that's exactly what it does mean when they assign it at birth, and that's why it's such a huge problem, because it's a discriminatory marker to have uh, identified uh, the trouble is when you get into society and you start to use your identification for everyday things like purchasing something that's for adults or going into a place that's for adults, um, it's not treated as a sex, sex uh, biological body parts identifier. It's treated as a gender identifier because, of course, you are a woman in, in society, but you don't go around showing your genitals everywhere. Um, so for that reason, the the sex designation being recorded... <laughs> pardon me, the gender designation being recorded from sex parts, um, that's, that's, that's the violation right there. Um, and yet, going a step further, you have to ask yourself, what even is the purpose of a government-issued identification document that attempts to legally differentiate one, two, or two or more genders, even having the option of the X? It still creates um, a systemic, entrenched classification of different types of people. Uh, and if you look historically in Canada and even presently in some other countries, there are places where your your legal rights are different depending on how your gender is legally recorded. So, for instance, in Canada, you once could not have a bank account or a job or own property or vote if you had a female designation. Uh, and in other countries, there are some issues around driving privileges. Um, so it really, a legally designated gender is an issue not just for trans people, but in fact for, for all women. Is there any scenario where where you think it is is useful? The only I was trying to to think of that myself. And what if somebody um, and I, maybe it's because I work in news. If somebody is missing and we get the description, that's often part of the description, and it's put out there as a, a help, something to help people look out for this person or to to uh, di- describe somebody. Um, if you, is is that a scenario? Do you think where where gender is helpful in in describing? Well, gender is helpful in describing. And, you know, in fact, there are many uh, identifying features about about you that that wouldn't be marked on your identification. You might one day, Jill, open your wallet and see your identification card uh, not carry a gender. But that doesn't cause you to cease to be a woman, nor does it cause people to stop identifying you as a woman. Uh, If you, you know, if someone were to go missing, you would say, this is their name, they are, this is their gender, this is their height, their their hair color, what have you. And uh, the identification that's stored in a legal document doesn't necessarily uh, need to carry the gender in order for gender to still be useful for us to relate to each other in society. Right. Uh, And is BC, so with BC making this this change, and is it... I know you earlier said it, it's not even a step in the right direction. What what would be removing it completely? Ideally, yeah, that would be that would be perfect. Uh, the end goal, the end state, is to have no gender reflected in government identification. In the same way that we don't identify someone's ethnic background, their race on identification documents. Uh, you know, we we did at one time, and it was established that it was more unhelpful than helpful, and it was removed. 
gender would uh, would just work the same way. And to interface with systems that don't allow that, the 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 inter the interstitial state uh, would be put everyone on X. We have systems now across not only the country but the world through the passport treaty that do understand an X designation for unspecified. That's where male or female information is not available. Canada can simply make gender designation not available and carry the X on every single piece of ID, not even printed on the card necessarily, but just in the system in the background. Right. And that would be a way of giving our people uh, gender freedom. And does it open up the door as well? And and I, I still, I mean, we've spent probably far too much time speaking about the issues around public bathrooms and public washrooms. What does it do for for that? As far do we need to move to more of a of a neutral uh, type model when it comes to to washrooms? Because that's that's one area where I would see perhaps there would be an issue if somebody thinks that somebody is in a washroom and they shouldn't be. Well. There's, um, it's always great to see more gender-neutral restrooms popping up, but it's, uh, it's not really related to the ID issue. Because in Canada, if someone tries to make you show your ID in order to give you access to a, a gender bathroom, they're breaking the law. You do not have to prove your legal gender designation. It is your human right in Canada to use the restroom which best accommodates your gender identity. And the only time someone should ever be thrown out of a washroom is if they're caught misbehaving inside. And to date, that has never once happened in Canada with a transgender person. Right. And it would more be, it in, would be anybody. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, just one of, one of our points we like to, to make is that more senators have been arrested for misbehaving in bathrooms than trans people in North America. And 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 exactly, and, and that may, you make an interesting point because it's it's you're right. It's not it's if somebody is breaking a law, and that at that point it doesn't matter what to, your identification says. It's the fact that you're in a public space and you're breaking a law, or you're you're doing something that's that's not permitted. That's right, and um, be, you know, existing in a public space and using a restroom uh, is not a crime. Where do we go from here as far as uh, this move has uh, taken place in BC? What would you like to see happen next? Uh, well, our organization, Gender Free ID Coalition, uh, we've, we've been working for many years to achieve, just as I said, a total elimination of gender information from government IDs and documents. Uh, some, we've worked with the government and occasionally, unfortunately, we've worked against them in human rights uh, courts. And we are going to continue that fight. We are going to continue in every venue that exists in Canada. Um, uh, We've already won an acknowledgement from the federal government that it's inappropriate to collect and store gender unless they can prove a legitimate uh, need in any specific case. And and to my knowledge, they've uh, yet to be able to do that. So we're looking forward to continuing to, uh, to convince people that they don't need gender on their ID. All right, Kristen, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us again. appreciate your time today. Thank you, Joe. The question being asked, do we really need more special education assistance? That's a question that is raised in a column that Patty Bankus wrote for the, the Georgia Strait. She is a former Vancouver School Board chair, and she joins us on the line now to talk a little bit more about that. Patty, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. Walk us through a bit uh, the, the point of this or, or the, the focus of this article. You're looking at, at what's needed in the school system, uh, what uh, could make it work better, and you, you ask a bit of a bigger question. 
Yeah, I was trying to really open up a conversation, and it was a bit of a provocative question because if you follow any kind of uh, education social media channels and they hear from parents, there's always a need for more special education assistance. And these are the staff in schools who uh, generally have a one-year training from a post-secondary program at one of the, the colleges, uh, sometimes more, um, and they assist teachers in classrooms and work with students with various kinds of special needs. Um, there, there is a shortage of them for sure. But what I observed in my years involved in education as a school trustee and as a, as a parent and as a school board chair is that when we went back and looked at when there were a lot of cuts to teaching positions, and this was you know, after the former government came to power and there was the dispute over the contract and the contract stripping that we know ultimately had to be reversed, but there were hundreds of teacher positions in Vancouver being lost. Uh, 2002, I know over 200 positions. And what we saw happen was when they had taken away the uh, teacher contract language that limited the number of special needs per class and some other fairly tight provisions, kind of ripped up that contract, is what I saw happen was a lot of the experienced special education teachers left the system or their jobs were eliminated. And we saw an increase in hiring of special education assistance to work in classrooms and support teachers who had, you know, numbers of students in their class who required that. And it really made me think about the fact that when we started doing special education inclusion back really in the 1980s, we had a system that was not designed for those kids. We had a system that was designed for kids who fell somewhere in what we often call the typical category, uh, not the you know ones at either end of the spectrum, either the highly gifted students or the ones that had other kinds of disabilities. And instead of trying to force those kids to fit into a system that isn't designed for them and adding in these aids to help them get through the day, you know, maybe it's time we need to really pull back and look at building an education system that is truly inclusive and understands there are going to be kids from one end of the spectrum to the other. If we're truly inclusive, we need to design a school system that accommodates that. I use the comparison of architecture, how when you go into modern public buildings, there will be ramps, there'll be elevators, there might be braille on the elevators, that we've designed buildings now so that People can use them independently. You don't require someone to carry you up the stairs if you happen to need a wheelchair. It just makes sense. We haven't really got there in education. We've said, well, the system doesn't work for you. You've got particular needs, so we're going to have to give you uh, an assistant. And instead of saying, well, what do we need to change about the school system so that it, it works for for all kids um, and only those with really profound needs would still require some sort of special designation label and an assistant. So, you know, there's a long way to get there, but I do think it's the conversation we need to be having. And it, it, it does happen. This isn't, uh, I didn't make up this concept. It's been discussed for years and years in education circles, but we're still kind of just filling in uh, gaps by bringing in these, these staff who do great and important work. And I, I have utmost respect for the role of special education assistants. But sometimes I think we're looking for the wrong solution to a much larger challenge. Is, is there an issue as well? Because and, and when you talk about the, the so-called typical student, one of the things we often hear is because of whether it's a lack of education assistance or a, la- a lack of supports, that there is so much attention paid and so much that needs to be done for, for a student who maybe doesn't fit well into the system, that the so-called typical students get left behind because they are okay on their own and they are left on their own to, to figure it out because all of the resources are going into those who need extra help. 
Well, I think what happens is we see that you have a, for example, in classrooms, you'll have a teacher with one. I've been in classes with two special education assistants. Just even that starts getting crowded in the room. And then you have a teacher who has a responsibility for educating all of the children in the class and monitoring their progress. And they will often be teaching to the, the the. the middle of the group, really, to an extent. And I'm I'm really oversimplifying it because I've seen tremendous examples of differentiated learning and how teachers do that. But what will happen is a lot of the kids with the special needs designation will end up really being taught by their education assistant, who isn't trained as an educator. They're they're trained in behavior management and helping helping a teacher uh, manage their class, but they're not truly educators. And often what will happen, because that one teacher is tasked with educating this broad range of kids in a in a setting that really isn't conducive to that, in my opinion, uh, some will be taken off. They're called special. They're going off out to other rooms with a worker and, and doing their work separately from the group, as opposed to a system that um, is more flexible and has the right supports and technology and equipment and, and perhaps even a second teacher in some cases, uh, where students can all be working on the same concept, but at levels and depths that uh, align with their own capabilities. And do you think, what would it take, though, to make that kind of shift? Well, I think we have to look at how we compose classes and schools. I think we have to look at how we train teachers before they even get to classrooms so that they have a a broad uh, understanding of approaches to teaching students with a range of abilities and disabilities. That we may need to look at, instead of packing in more assistance and is maybe we need more specialized teachers or teachers with that level of training. So getting back to having actually properly trained teachers doing the teaching for all kids as opposed to uh, providing some with assistance. We need to look at the kind of uh, resources we provide teachers with and technology can be quite supportive in some cases. We also need to look at how we configure our schools and the spaces we have. Now, I find when I walk, I've been in classrooms when I would, when I was a school trustee and I'd visit schools and I'd go into classrooms and classrooms aren't that big. And there could be 29, 12 year olds, a teacher and two aides. And that is a really crowded room and it's a busy room. And I know myself, if I'm trying to write something complicated or read something complicated or learn a new concept, I need peace and quiet. (laughs) And I look at those classrooms and I didn't even like being in them in some cases. Like, I just got to get out of here. This is chaos. So you imagine, you know, maybe we need to think better about how we design the physical environments as well. So there are places for students who need that quiet, who need to calm down. For some, just the stimulation of a classroom is overwhelming. So we've already neglected the needs of many students just in the architecture of the schools that they just can't function. Um, We need to look at supporting teachers with the kind of um, expertise and and, uh, mentorship to address the needs of of a complex range of students and really rethink that this thing where we have to call some students special, they're all special, of course, but singling some out and giving them a label and giving them a designation because they don't really fit in the system we designed. So it really is that whole, and and I, you know, we're partway there. This isn't really radical thinking because the new BC curriculum is designed to be far more flexible and give teachers that flexibility to look at the concepts and how they want to teach them. So you can be working on on a concept and some students can be going into great depth and research and others can be working on a on a much perhaps more shallow level but an area that addresses their interest and gives them the opportunity to learn about that topic but perhaps in a way that 
is is more in line with their own abilities at that point in time. Uh, but even uh, even the, the idea sounds great. But I mean, we're doing stories right now about French immersion classes that the teacher's not French because there's such a lack of teachers out there. There's a lack of, I mean, trying to fill the spaces of the, the court ruling has proven to be so difficult in some cases. How would we even begin? Well, I'm not suggesting this is something we're going to do overnight, but I do think we need to have the bigger thinking as we go forward. We're spending billions of dollars on public education in this province every year. We're spending large, large amounts on on hiring assistants and educators, and I don't think all kids are getting the the best outcomes they can. So I'm not suggesting this is an easy fix, but I do think it's something we need to start looking at. Instead of just sort of finding ways to make kids fit into something that was never meant for them. How do we redesign the system in a way? And and with that long view, and I'm talking about working with the universities, uh, there's a lot of good research in this area, and there are all kinds of educators who understand this concept and, and could provide advice on that. But I think in the long term, if we're spending that kind of money, and I don't believe all students are getting the best opportunities they can right across the spectrum, I think we do really well, but I think we can do better. And we have to look at what what do we want our system to look like? We've come a long way. I mean, inclusion really became a thing in the 80s. Uh, Where are we now? What have we learned? And how can we do this even better? instead of just trying to kind of cover over the cracks in the system by bringing in people and plunking them into positions that aren't always suitable. And in many cases, it works very well, but in many more cases, it isn't working well. And, you know, the teacher shortage, I think, is a, a bit of a blip, the out, outcome of some political decisions that were made over the last couple of decades. I mean, the contract stripping, and if five years ago, or even three years ago, people would say we were training way too many teachers, and now we've discovered we have a shortage. Well, that's a result of political decisions and court decisions that I think will be remedied over the next few years, as people see that uh, there's a, there is a future going into teaching, which I think a few years ago people felt there wasn't. I uh, hope that remains the case. But But I think if we want to respect teachers and draw them to the profession, and particularly those ones with the specialized uh, postgraduate training in special education, which which we should be doing more of in the regular teaching programs, we need to give them assurance their roles will be respected and their jobs will be secure. Unfortunately, what happened... um, Um, under the former government is a lot of those specialized positions were cut or broken up into small parts. So they get two days a week at one school and two days a week at another and an overwhelming caseload of kids. They just couldn't meet their needs. Um, So people left the profession, they retired or they went back to classrooms. But we need to really rethink uh, how we're going to do this and, and give the confidence to people that if they get that kind of training and commit their lives to that, they'll have Uh, jobs where they can really make a difference with kids and have reasonable caseloads and um, support teachers in classrooms as Uh, well. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We're out of time. Uh, Patty Backus, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Well, thank you. Enjoy the conversation. Thanks Uh, a lot, Jill. As we did fall back overnight. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this is Stanley Corrin, uh, Professor Emeritus of the Department of Psychology at UBC. Uh, Stanley Corrin, thank you so much for being with us. Pleased to be here, Jill. Uh, you've studied this. You've written about this in the past. Why is it, do you think, so controversial? Uh, we always have the conversation now uh, at, in the spring and the fall about ditching the changing of the clocks. Well, it's it's controversial for a lot of reasons. I mean, if you uh, if you like outdoor sports, for example, um, by switching to daylight savings time, you get a couple of you get an extra hour of uh, 
of daylight. And if you're a golfer, you know, it gives you extra time uh, after work and, and that sort of thing. Um, the uh, On the other hand, I mean, farmers really don't like daylight saving time because the cows can't read the clock and they have to be milked whenever they need to be milked. And uh, daylight savings time, uh, um, you know, means that, that you you can't pick the crops uh, for an hour in the morning because they're still due on them, so they're still wet and that kind of thing. The original reason, uh, uh, you know, for daylight savings time was to save energy. Um, actually, it was proposed by Benjamin Franklin as a joke, as a way of uh, conserving uh, candle wax. Um, but um, during World War One, it was introduced because uh, by uh, centering, if you will, the, the active hours of the day, um, uh, you, you can uh, reduce the amount of energy which people need uh, to, sort of to light their, their homes and, at night and that kind of thing. And uh, the first country to introduce it was Germany uh, because they were very worried about coal shortages and that sort of thing. And Ronald Reagan, back in the 80s, uh, extended the amount of time that we have for daylight savings time, um, again, as, a, as an energy-conserving uh, thing. But there's, there's a lot of, you know, if you're in a... Uh, region which is closer to the equator, there's not much change in day length uh, over the season. So daylight savings time isn't really a, a benefit there. And if you're in the in the high Arctic, I mean, the, the changes are so great that daylight saving time gives you no benefit. So it's it's right in the middle, you know, in the in the temperate zone uh, where daylight savings time is useful. The premier has come out saying he looked at it, he looked at scrapping it, he's decided there's not uh, the appetite for that. Uh, do you think that, that there is some merit to to looking at getting rid of it? Um, well, you know, what, my studies looked at the effects that it had on public safety, on things like uh, accidents and and that sort of thing. And in the spring, when you lose the uh, the the hour, um, you know it's it's uh, it has some some negative effects on the on the Monday and Tuesday uh, following the shift to uh, to daylight savings time. You get about a six percent bump up in accident rates uh both on the highway and at work and that sort of thing um but uh overall since uh the day the working hours are centered in the light there's actually about a half a percent um uh, increase in safety and since that goes over day after day after day, then that's more than offsets the the, the short-term uh, loss. Uh, there are some, you know, it, it really is controversial. I mean, uh, Florida is trying to get rid of um, the time shift, but they want to do it uh, not by having standard time all the year, but by having uh, daylight savings time. Uh, uh, as the as the standard and unchanging time, and 
but they they have a lovely name for their act. It's called the Sunshine Protection Act. And <laughs> uh, um, but. Uh, that takes congressional approval, and uh, Congress has been stalling so uh, on on that. Uh, I don't think. I mean, my own feelings are that daylight saving times works well enough, um, and it does have some benefits. And without daylight say you know, without the time shifts, um, you know, at some times of the year, uh, sunrise, especially here in Canada, is going to be past uh, 8 a.m. Uh, which means we're going to be sending our kids to school walking in the dark. I, that makes me feel uncomfortable. All right. Well, we'll, we'll leave it there, and uh, I'll put the call out to, to the listeners to see what they think. Uh, Professor Corin, thank you so much for joining us, though, and talking about this. I appreciate it. All right. Take care. New report is out today, taking a look at property values and transportation. It's a report that has been put out by the Real Estate Investment Network, and Jennifer Hunt is the Vice President of Research and Events at the Real Estate Investment Network, as she joins us on the line now. Jennifer, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, maybe walk us through exactly uh, what this report looks at to when we're looking at property values and uh, the transportation uh, that is built uh, that is available nearby. Certainly. Well, for those of you who don't know the Real Estate Investment Network, we're now um, operating the Real Estate Intelligence Network, and that's in keeping with the future and with um, digital uh, digitalization and also the transparency of information and intelligence. And that's exactly what this report is bringing to um, consumers and to home buyers and to investors alike in the in the lower mainland and also across Canada. We're updating them for a number of um, other communities as well. And really, what happens with um, and we've been doing this for 26 years, by the way. So um, we have a lot of um, experience in transportation and also in how that affects real estate. Because one might be wondering, well, why are we even talking about transportation when we're thinking? A real estate investment and also um, their values as well as their rents. And that's exactly what we look at is that there's um, transportation from a, a macro perspective. We look at the formula, which is any kind of massive infrastructure. So, for example, a very easy one in Vancouver is that um, $9.1 billion investment at YVR was announced this summer. And that gives you an indication of where an economy going is going, where the health of the um, community is going that type of regional approach. And so we're seeing that Vancouver is having, um, from an infrastructure perspective, a significant investment. And then that, of course, leads to um, what we call our range transportation formula. And when we look at that infrastructure as a as, as the source of a future potential economic activity, as well as accessibility, then we naturally then see rents and values increase. And then this report also goes into the transportation effect. And that is where we look at right down to the meter and also what type of property works best in a particular um, location, particularly near um, transit stations, so SkyTrain stations, LRT commuter rail, um, and and, uh, access to highways. And not to oversimplify the findings in the report, but not a huge surprise that when transit is available and when it's nearby, that is a good thing as far as as property values. People want to be near that, and we do see the values go up. Yeah, and what uh, absolutely, and what we we were able to do is 
um, add to the peer-reviewed, um, so we looked at a lot of peer-reviewed studies and academic journals, and we really updated and added to that, sort of coalescing and bringing them all those conversations together, and also looking at how um, it affects different types of properties differently. So multifamily experiences, you know, a higher surge, even closer multifamily residential, that is, apartment buildings, they'll experience an even higher surge closer to that transit station, let's say, whereas there is a, there is a, also a, a place where it stops. So, you, you know, multifamily will experience a benefit out to 1,600 meters, whereas a single-family home, they're looking more in that 800-meter meter range. And what was also interesting, and for the first time ever, we took the body of research that's out there and we actually applied it to case studies across Canada so that individuals can see that it's actually in practice, in play, and get a, a sense that the, the research is very solid out there about, exactly to your point, um, that it, you know, it really isn't a surprise, but being able to, to tangibly say this is a case study that proves it, and also um, looked at reverse proof. So in cases where transportation was pulled out of a community, for example, and how that had a negative impact on values and rents. And when we look at the different types of transit options, because it's been a big issue in Surrey with the, the new mayor of Surrey being elected on a promise to get rid of the plans for light rapid transit and to bring in SkyTrain instead. Does this report, though, look at the difference between those two? Because it seems like this the report has put SkyTrain under the the uh, heading of light rapid transit. Yeah, and um, correct. And the, the real um, component that's happening there, and we actually tier the various different levels of what you need to be, uh, whether you're a home buyer or an investor, of where you need to be looking for. Um, and you want to make sure that you're prioritizing areas that we call first tier that are actually under construction. So we'll leave that aside because we know that the Surrey um, Guilford line that has not been, uh, while well, it was you know it was funded, it has not started construction. And then what we call a market influencer. Um, otherwise known as in politics and many other market influencers, but politics in this case came into play and with a new election and with the mayor saying uh, that he'd like to look at the different, a different, it's not so much the different type of transportation to your point, LRT and, um, and SkyTrain and, and even commuter rail as well, all serve a very similar function. And therefore it's more about the matter of the route. That is the, the, the biggest, um, biggest sort of uh, yield sign, if you will, uh, using the transportation metaphor, because we want to make sure that we actually have, um, before you go ahead and invest, you want to make sure that construction is in play um, so that those um, plans are solidified. There's more about the route. The route is um, the, the, the new proposed route um, by the, the mayor in Surrey uh, uh, is to go out to Langley over the Fraser Highway, as opposed to down the um, Surrey-Newton-Guilford line. As, and it is about, like you said, even if construction hasn't started, that is something that, I mean, developers look at that, people moving into new neighbourhoods will look at that. Uh, it is a driver as to where people are drawn. A hundred percent. And it is one of many. And I always like to um, caution, but just remind Home buyers and investors, you know, we at Real Estate Investment Network and Real Estate Intelligence Network now, we really like to be conservative and, and ensure that people are, are purchasing 
places that are, you know, that fit for what they're looking for to fund their lives and to, you know, for create financial freedom or just even to create a lifestyle that they're looking for. And so you want to layer in transportation, whether it's the formula, whether it's the effect at a local level, along with so many other um, layers and formulas so that you're looking at the right economic foundations. Are there lots of jobs and diverse employers, quality employers, so that you're in an area that's attracting um, your target tenants or your target market or even just where you want to live. So you're looking for the future and layering lots of different um, aspects on. And then by layering all those components, we teach all of that through our authentic Canadian real estate program, which is actually happening right now. I'm down in the dressing room taking this call as we get prepared for 500 investors um, this afternoon and today. But uh, at any rate, so we teach all of those. And you want to make sure that you're bolstering your investments as much as possible. And transportation is certainly one of those components that you can layer on. All right. Uh, we'll leave it there. I know it's a, a busy, busy day for you. Jennifer, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Uh, appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And we look forward to uh, talking with you again. Well, for some people, it might be a little early to be talking about Christmas. Others are in full swing. I've uh, even saw a couple of homes last night that had the Christmas lights out, the red and green. They were lit up. But one surefire way to get in the spirit is to take a little journey to the Circle Craft Craft Fair. The uh, cooperative is coming back to town. It will be here November 7th to the 11th at the Convention Centre West in Vancouver. Uh, Every year on this program, we talk uh, about this. We get a bit bit of a preview of the big event. And joining us uh, on the line once again uh, to talk about this is Paul Yard. He is the producer of the Circle Craft Christmas Market. Paul, thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you for having me. And I'll also mention that Heidi Dennison is with us as well, one of the many exhibitors. She's also on the line. Heidi, thanks to you as well. Good morning, Jill. Thanks for having me. Uh, Paul, I want to start with you. We've talked with you before. Now, am I correct in saying this is your final market? Uh, yes, I think 47 is probably enough. <laughs> That's a lot of Christmas markets. <laughs> it is indeed. Uh, so what, what kept you going or what drew you to this and putting, uh, which I'm sure around this time of year or leading up to it is quite stressful. What, what drew you to being uh, such a big part of this? Well, you know, I started off uh, back in the early 70s as the local candle maker and found uh, being a craftsman is really hard work. It was much better to get into organizing. And so I started organizing the uh, Circle Craft Market about 1984, 86. And I've been uh, producing it ever since. And how has it grown? How big was it when you first started? Well, when we started back in 72, 73, it was in the Vancouver East Cultural Center. And we had about 60, 70, 75 uh, artisans uh, that rotated over three weeks in Vancouver East Cultural Centre. Now we're up to, I think it's 323 exhibitors this year in Vancouver Convention Centre West. Wow. So it's a much bigger uh, operation than it was, uh, but the whole thing is really fueled by craftspeople with huge amount of passion for their work, and uh, that's what you'll find at this show. Well, let's bring in Heidi, because you are one of the exhibitors. How important is it for you, or why was it important for you to be part of this? Well, I just, 
just, um, you know, think it, we're, we're so lucky to have a show of this caliber in Vancouver. And I'm just honored to be a part of it with, with all the other artisans that participate. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful showcase of, of all the talent in BC and, and the rest of Canada as well. And tell us a bit, your company is called Heidi. What will you be selling and showing at the fair? That's right. Yeah, so I'm a painter. Um, so that's where it all starts for me. Uh, I paint landscapes and, and uh, local wildlife, um, mostly. Uh, so I sell my, my original paintings. And I also then print my artwork onto uh, fabric and I have a clothing line that includes um, leggings and toques and skirts and um, funky, active, casual wear, wear sort of for the West Coast gal. So that's what I do. And how is it? I mean, this particular craft market, and I'll, I'll bring Paul back in in just a moment, is your target audience is there. People have, for the most part, except for the lucky people who will win tickets today, people have paid money for their ticket. It's a destination for a lot of people. Uh, so it's a bit of, I mean, that's a target market. But but generally speaking, is it? how is it in this day and age of we have so many things that are disposable, people want things cheap, they're, they're, it's, it's kind of overload in that sense, uh, to, to sell what's what's handmade what's high quality and it does cost more than than say buying something uh, that that is of a far less quality yeah yeah you know i just think like you said in this in this day and age where there's just so much consumption it's wonderful to be able to go somewhere and pick out a unique treasure that you that you adore and and maybe to consider purchasing you know, less in volume, but but better quality and and items that you're really excited to give or to keep for yourself. So, and Paul, you mentioned so we're up at about 323 exhibitors. I'm guessing there were a whole lot more. The number of people that wanted to be exhibitors was probably much higher. How do you choose? Well, we have a, a jury of of our members. Um, uh, elder craftsmen, if you will, and uh, they sit and they go through these applications one by one and take it very seriously. And they're looking for quality, and they're also looking for uh, a variety of goods that will suit a very big audience. Right. Is there anything that's absolutely not allowed? Uh, Well... Mass manufactured. Right. <laughs> we, we are really trying for quality handcrafted goods. And sometimes things sneak in, but it's uh, while we have the jury sit around a table and, and uh, look at photos and sometimes bring in goods to look at, uh, the jury will go around the show and look at every booth and see what's out on the table because uh, it's impossible to jury 323 exhibitors from product. Right. Uh, Heidi, is it a place where, as an exhibitor, is it the place where you're hoping to bring in a lot of revenue uh, during the days of the craft fair, or is it more about exposure and getting your product out there and people talking about it? Mm-hmm. I, w- I would say it's both for me. Um, it's definitely an opportunity for me to to you know sell over those five days and connect with people there. Um, but but like you said, it, it's a place where um, I just make a lot of contact with people. I have an online shop at HeidiTheArtist.ca, and and I run that year round, and that's where I do contact, you know, connect with a lot of people at the show who then uh, will also find me online. So so it's both of those. 
All right. And Paul, is there is there uh, uh, emphasis put on, say, B.C. artists? Because uh, there are people from across the country that come and take pl- take part in this. Is it is it more B.C. focused or do you try and make sure that there are there are different parts of the country represented? Well, we certainly have every people from right across the country. And but the proximity is gives us many more from BC. So we've got about 180 from BC, from around Vancouver, the lower mainland and the islands. And then the rest come from Quebec, Ontario, and a smattering from uh, every ever, every province across the country. <laughs> and do you hear from people after the market? Do people contact you and say, hey, I would, I would really like to see more of this, or I would really like to see less of this, and, and try and mold it that way? Constantly. And we also hear from people, I wish I'd got, and how can I get in touch with this particular artisan? Oh, the, and the, that's the, happening all the time. The too. regret of, oh, I'm sure you get a lot of those. I saw it, it was a pillow, it was red. Do you exactly. know who made that? <laughs> Somewhere to the left of the door. Ooh, yes. <laughs> uh, Heidi, how competitive is it to, with other exhibitors and trying to make sure you, you have the exposure? Does it does it matter where you're located in the, is, is there a coveted spot in the the layout? Oh, you know, I think every exhibitor probably has an idea where they would like to be, um, but I think it differs for every exhibitor because all of our products are just so, so diverse and so different. So, you know, some people might want to be next to the stage area or, um, you know, next to the front door. For me, I find... Um, I, I'm not overly worried about it. I think my customer will find me um, no matter what. And, you know, I just focus more on my, my own booth and my booth design and try to try to design it so that it showcases my product as best as possible. And what about the, the idea of exchanges or taking things back? Can you do that when we're talking about such such uh, unique or handmade mm-hmm. and, and one-of-a-kind pieces and such? Mm-hmm. Well, for myself, I do um, accept exchanges and returns, so um, that's not a problem with, you know, I just want my customer to be really happy and pleased with with their purchase, so if they need to switch it out, that's fine with me, especially with sizing, if they're giving it as a gift. Um, you know, sometimes some, uh, somebody will buy something for their daughter, and if it's not the right size, they need to return it after Christmas, and that's just fine. All right. and, I, and I guess the, the the key there is even though they've they've purchased they found you at this fair they they mm. then just have to find you afterwards and yeah, find out how to get I, in touch with you after. Exactly, I, all my all my hang tags have my website and my email information on them, so people can always uh, just contact me that way, and and it, it goes pretty smoothly. They just pop it in the mail, and I'll send them their new size. All right. Uh, Paul, what advice do you have for people uh, maybe who haven't been to the fair before or to get the most out of it? Is there a strategy somebody should have when visiting this this market, which can be a bit overwhelming when you first walk in that door? Well, number one, wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long walk, actually, to go by 323 booths. And um, pace yourself. Get a starting point. Uh, I would suggest aisle A, <laughs> and and you'll you'll get by every booth if you just take your time. There are uh, uh, little restaurant areas and rest areas, if you will. Uh, a couple of bars that you can have a glass of wine if you want. Take a chance to have a little rest, and um, just take your time. 
take your time and engage the craftspeople themselves in conversation because you're talking to the people that actually make the goods here. And uh, like I said at the beginning, these are passionate people that are in this business because they love what they do and they love producing. All right. And you're handing off the reins after this year. Uh, Will we expect it to be similar going down into the future or do you know? It's going to be very similar. I think we've got uh, the people that I've been working with for the last two or three years uh, are going to be taking over and they are excellent. So there's no problem there. And the craftspeople, they're going to be the same craftspeople for the most part. Uh, We get our mm, 20, 25% new people every year just from attrition and turnover. But uh, it it will be a similar show and maintain the uh, quality that we've always had. All right. Well, well, congratulations on so many years of success and good luck to you uh, in the future. And Heidi, do you know where you're going to be? Can you, can you uh, tell people, let people know if they're coming there, where they can find you? I do. You can find me at booth F19. So All that's right. where I will be starting next Wednesday. All right. Sounds great. Well, thanks to both of you so much. I know it's a very busy time leading up to uh, the fair. Thank you both so much for being with us this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jill.